you guys pray with me, please, as we get started? Most gracious Heavenly Father, you are the great I am. You are holy, 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 and worthy of our praise and our worship. Father, we are so grateful that we are here this morning in your house, that we have the freedom to worship you and to love each other. And Father, I pray this morning that your spirit stir our hearts and that the message be for the honor and the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. I am, uh, I am excited to be here. Um, it's been a long time since I've been in a, in a pulpit in a position like this, so I'm a little rusty. And I pray for grace. Over, overlook the messenger, please. Um, this is the 30th... Uh, this is the 30th year since since that plane uh, crash happened, and um, I can tell you that um, no man stepped into the gap for me uh, in the loss of dad uh, greater than Larry, and uh, his tears are my own, and I'm grateful. So. Um, Let's do this, and not the crying thing. <laughs> Paul, Harvey, uh, Paul Harvey began a series called The Rest of the Story um, on his regular news section back in World War II. And in 1976, it was so popular that it took its own time slot, and it stayed there until his death in 2009. The premise of each segment of The Rest of the Story was some little known or forgotten fact about a variety of subjects with some key element that ties the whole story together being held out to the very end. Some of those endings were predictable and some not so much. And I thought we'd play a little game this morning and see if you can figure this one out. I was born the eldest child of a Southern Baptist preacher. He was a well-loved and well-respected man, and as you can tell, he had a beautiful and talented wife, my mom. Uh, but in 1961, the words Southern Baptist and um, uh, Puritan were kind of interchangeable. Um, Mayflower kind of stuff, Plymouth Rock. We didn't have any, any stocks or whipping posts at my house, but we had a lot of trees, and the trees had lots of branches. And... Uh, when necessary, one of those tree branches could be pulled off and stripped of its leaves. And uh, we affectionately refer to that as a switch. Uh, not, not, not like, a, not like a, a light switch, but, but it could definitely light you up when it's used right. And, and the willow tree branches were, were the worst, uh, or the best, depending on which end of that switch you were standing. Um, and the worst psychological part for me was having to go out into the yard and to pick my own switch. And I know you guys are following this. If I picked one small enough, I never felt it. If I picked one big enough, he couldn't swing it. But he, he caught on, and, and, and he, 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 always, he always picked just the right, the right switch, and, and he wielded it with, with deadly accuracy. And I, I learned what his hot buttons were and which things to avoid growing up 
and, and, and which things I could kind of slide by with. Um, and, and alcohol was one of the big no-nos in my house. Uh, that, was, that was the one that I, I chose never to test. And I made it all the way through junior high and high school with an area dropped a drink. Everyone else around me was, but, but I wasn't going to test that one. Then I went off to college. Uh, mind you, I went to Baylor, a little Baptist encampment on the Brazos. Well, all the rest of my friends went to UT, but I wasn't allowed to go to UT um, because uh, I quote, down there there's too much free love and beer. And, uh, and I, now I know you're dying to play the game and I'll give you like 30 seconds to tell me the rest of my story. <laughs> and, and first 20 don't count. Um, the, the message this morning, though, from, from Elijah's life is, is not necessarily about God's discipline, though there are many corollaries that we can draw. God's accuracy with his discipline, like Dad's, was always perfect. Never the legs, never the back, always the butt, dead center. He never delivered that discipline out of hate. Dad didn't hate, and God cannot. As the poem goes, it's only for the sake of love that the river turns. It was never with rage, because nobody can stand under the, under the power, unbridled power of a lightning bolt. God's discipline is never impulsive. It's never capricious, because the purpose, of, the purpose in my disobedience is always the purposed target of his sovereign hand in my change. Now the message from Elijah this morning, it's speaking about us and it's speaking about our time. We're living in a post-secular world. People are more and more realizing the need for something to believe in that's bigger than themselves. The problem today is not whether to believe in God, but which God are we going to believe in? Elijah lived, in fact, all of the prophets lived in a time in Israel where the people were accosted by deities. There were lots of gods, lots of options for worship, places to go other than Yahweh. And just as God had warned them through Moses, when you enter the land, stay true or you're going to lose. Well, they were losing, especially under Ahab. As mom said, he was the seventh king in succession and he was the most wicked king that Israel had had. And for 22 years, he led the people with really bad choices and a real weakness of character. It began with him marrying the Phoenician princess Jezebel for the sake of political unity and financial strength. And she was the real devil in that deal. Her father was the king of Sidon, and his name was Eth Baal, which means with Baal. And as you can imagine, she brought Baal and a whole host of other, um, of other idolatries, pagan ritual, fertility, power, wealth, into the, to the nation of Israel. And Ahab quickly turned his back on God, and he built temples to Baal throughout Israel. And the people fell away, following their, their king and their queen bending the knee and kissing the statues. And into this quagmire is where Elijah comes. He confronted Ahab. He confronted Israel. He did it often and he did it loudly. 
but the political correctness was on the side of tolerance and of diversity, the worship of Baal and not the seeking of truth. Temple prostitution brought wealth into the doors of the temple, and the sacrifice of children was rampant in the land at the time. And centuries before this, as the Israelites prepared to enter the promised land, God commanded Moses to warn them that the temptation to become like those in whose land they were entering would be great. But if they ever turned away, if they ever worshipped the gods of the land for the milk and the honey that flowed around them, then here's what would happen. And I quote, The anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. He will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and that the ground will not yield its fruit. And you will perish quickly from the land which the Lord is giving you. So now God sends Elijah to Ahab to tell him that he's going to fulfill this warning. They pull their own switch from that tree, and it's about to land squarely on their backsides. Elijah tells Ahab that for the next three and a half years, neither rain nor dew is going to touch the earth, and the famine's going to be great. He, and, and what Elijah's doing is he is striking at the very heart of Baal, who was supposed to be the one in charge of the rain, in charge of the sun, in charge of the fruit of the land. And it was so. The heavens closed, and Elijah retreats and waits for the Lord, seeing God bring about the punishment that he promised. All the while, he's learning how God provides for his own, even in the worst of times. And at the end of three and a half years, Elijah goes to Ahab, and he throws down that final monumental challenge that Mom alluded to. This was surely going to make the nation of Israel turn and once again worship the true Lord. He tells Ahab to bring all the prophets that he wants to bring and meet him at Mount Carmel. It, Mount Carmel was kind of the most recognizable place in Israel where everybody would come and watch. It's kind of like he rented out Jerry's World, complete with ESPN live telecasts for the whole world to see. And the challenge is, is to have two altars side by side, and whichever God would light the fire under the offering, that would be the true God, the one that Israel was to worship. So Ahab brings 450 prophets of Baal, and they stand around their altar while Elijah stands all alone by his. Elijah built his altar after, uh, by using 12 large stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. But it wasn't enough. He wanted to separate himself even more, so he dug a moat all the way around his altar. And he called on the prophets of Baal to go first. And the scripture says that they cried out in a loud voice from daylight till dusk, dancing around and chanting and cutting themselves. Nothing. Then Elijah spoke. He ordered four barrels filled with water three times dumped on his altar. The water drenched the offering. It drenched the wood. It drenched the rocks. It filled the moat to overflowing. And then he prayed. He said, Lord, answer me. Answer me that this people may know that you are God and that you are will turn their hearts again. And immediately that fire fell down from heaven and it 
consumed the sacrifice. It consumed the wood. It even consumed the rocks beneath the altar. It licked up the water. It consumed the ground under the rocks. And everyone fell on their faces. All of a sudden, it began to rain in Israel, just as Elijah had prophesied. And Elijah had all of the priests rounded up, and he killed them. And the last verse of chapter 18 says this, Then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he put his cloak in his belt, and he outran Ahab to Jezreel. Now Jezreel was the capital of Israel at the time. It was 25 miles away, and he beat Ahab and his chariot all the way back. Here's the first point of relevance for us that that I I want you to think about. Why did he run to the capital? The one place that, that he was despised, where he was most likely to be captured, most likely to be killed. Great victories tend to give us a false sense of self-worth, of invincibility. I acted on what I believed, and I won. Now I get it. Now I can't lose. He truly believed that all of Israel had witnessed that great miracle. Neither Ahab was going to turn from his sinful ways, or the people were going to cast him out and make the change. Well, not so much. You see, when you run out ahead of God... No matter how great the victory was in your life to begin with, you're always going to be surprised. Satan knows that we're most vulnerable when we are the most successful. There's only one person that can handle success for every thousand people that can handle failures. God's sovereign doesn't always follow my logic. Jezebel hears what he's done that he's killed her priests. And she says, may the gods do to me if by this time tomorrow I haven't killed you. And no one stands up for him. No one supports him. Nothing that he thought was going to happen, happened. So he runs. The rest of this story The rest of this story begins in fear. It begins in confusion. It begins in panic and desperation. Where was the Elijah that stood alone before all the prophets who feared no thing and no man? Apparently he doesn't exist. For us, the moment our eyes leave the Lord, even for the most spiritual of us, the the enemy swoops in. And where do our eyes go when we leave the Lord? straight to the mirror. Look at me. Look at what God has done through me. I've got this now. But the one looking back in that mirror at you is often clueless and quickly disheartened. What I believed to be true about me in the victory was really true. But the ultimate purpose was not about me. It wasn't for me, no matter what the arena it was. So Elijah runs. 
he runs again, this time in the opposite direction, out of fear for his own life. He runs all the way out of Israel, out the south end of Judah. Why? He wants answers. He, he's confused. He wants solace for his fear and his pain. He wants to find out. He wants to find the God that won the battle, but who now is apparently going to lose the war. So as he's leaving Judah, he dismisses his servant at Beersheba. He's letting his ministry staff go. He's quitting the ministry. And in despair, he's through pursuing what seems now to have had no purpose in his life. If God won't change the hearts of the people, no matter what I do or how well I do it, then why am I doing it at all? And he goes another day into the desert, and he finds a broom tree, and he lays down, and he wants to die. Verse 4 says, He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, came to the tree, juniper tree, requested for himself that he might die, and he said, It's enough, Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my father's. For you see, no one in Israel had listened to the prophets before him, and he thought that he would be different and that God would change him. You see, he goes from the pinnacle of success to the depths of despair in less than 24 hours. And I wonder if it's even possible for us to experience that kind of a miracle and then be left with zero hope in the very next moment. And it really is. If I'm engaged in any endeavor to which the Lord has directed me and I at any time believe that I have the full understanding of the reason that I'm there, then I begin to write my own rest of the story. And I am at that point in the gravest of danger. Elijah believed that because of what he had done, all of Israel would turn. The king would finally control his queen, and Yahweh would be returned to his rightful place. When I presume to know what the Lord's next move for me is without acknowledging to my own soul that he is sovereign over the thoughts and the actions that led me there in the first place, then I lose sight of him, and shortly after that I'm going to lose sight of myself and my worth and my purpose. And I am certainly capable of being there. So many people that I care deeply for have been touched by the ravages of despair. Hopelessness is not only the companion of mental illness, but of those who are spiritually fatigued and soulfully confused. Even Elijah, the Lord's greatest prophet, he was lost at this point, he was done, and he was just going to lay there until the Lord took him home. But no matter how far out ahead of God we get, and no matter how short a time it takes, his great purpose is always in revealing himself. In him lies everything that I am and everything that I'm going to be. And when he refocuses my sight on his majesty and his sovereignty, then he's able to restore my hope and my purpose. So Elijah laying there wanting to die, and the next thing that happens is an angel shows up. 
Actually, it's the angel, the angel of the Lord. What a loving picture of a loving God. The wisdom revealed through the angel as he dealt with Elijah's despair. What does the angel do? Does he question Elijah? What, what's wrong with you, Elijah? No. Does he give Elijah a self-help book and tell him to pull himself up by his bootstraps? No. Does he even say, well, do you want to talk about it, Elijah? No. What does he do? He cooks. He makes a meal over hot coals. The God of the universe puts on a chef's hat. Despair and despondency, they are real physical manifestations of an inward ability for us to cope. As such, the first thing you have to do is you have to care for that physical. To eat, to drink, to rest, to repeat. As Christians, we often want to help people in despair by focusing just on the spiritual part. You must be out of God's will. Have you prayed? Have you sought out all your hidden sin? Have you thanked God for His mercy? But we're more than spiritual beings. We're physical beings. We are relational beings. Sometimes what we need is a steak from Bob's Chop House and a walk around White Rock and a nap. Not a sermon and not a counselor. Just rest. The angel of the Lord addresses all three of Elijah's need and he does it in the order of importance. Verse 5. He lay down and slept under the juniper tree and behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on the stones and a jar of water. So he ate and he drank and he laid down again. The angel touched him. He let Elijah know that he was there. He fed him for his physical strength and then he let him go back to sleep. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord came again a second time and he touched him and he said, Arise, eat, because the journey for you is too great. So he arose, he ate, and he drank, and he went in the strength of the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb, which is the mountain of God. Here the angel finally acknowledges the spiritual need and he says, Get up and eat. For this journey is going to be too great. The journey to see God often requires some supernatural assistance. And it says that Elijah went 40 days in that one meal. Like Jesus in the wilderness and Moses on the mountain waiting for the commandments, God's single provision lasted for the entire journey. The process of healing and restoration begins with the physical but it often it needs to end with the supernatural, with the divine intervention. Where was Elijah going? Scripture doesn't say anything about his intent while he's under that bush to get up and go anywhere. Yet the angel knew that Elijah really needed and really wanted to see what God was really like. His soul was seeking the face of the Lord in order to begin to heal, in order to understand, in order to regain himself. And so he traveled 40 days to Mount Horeb. You may not recognize Mount Horeb 
but it was very recognizable by another name. It's also called Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, where Moses, century before, had met God in the burning bush, and then he led the children back there to receive the Ten Commandments. Elijah's going to that very mountain that God has been residing on for centuries, and he climbs the mountain in search of God, and, and here it, it gets even more interesting. The scripture says that he came to a cave, and there he lodged. The word cave is very, very generic here. It's a generic Hebrew word that means a hollow or a cleft. Elijah finds a cleft in the rock on the mountain of God, and he goes in. Several of the commentators I read believe that perhaps this is the very cleft that Moses was hidden in as God passed by him to show him his glory. And as he's in there, the Lord says to Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? You all know that when God asks a question, it's not for him to get an answer, right? He didn't say, wow, Elijah, why, why are you here? No, his questions, his questions are always to reveal the heart. His questions are nearly always a, a, a mirror into my life, one in which I can, I can look and I can see uh, what the motives and the actions and the feelings are for the purposes that, that I'm going after. Elijah's answer reveals exactly where he left the track, though. Here's what he says. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Son of Israel have, have, have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. You see what he just did? He put God in a box. He put God in a box when he left Mount Carmel and he ran all the way to Jezreel. I did what I was supposed to, God. I stuck to the plan. Everyone else in Israel has failed, but not me. The plan was perfect. You're the one that screwed up. Where the heck were you? I alone am left. There's no one else in Israel that hasn't kissed the bale. Now exactly what am I supposed to do when your plan doesn't work? And I'm the one who's left to suffer the consequences. There's the motive for his actions. The source code for his pain. But why did he come all the way to Horeb to ask that question? Because like Moses before him, and like us after him, he wanted and needed a direct answer to his confusion. He wanted to clear his head. He wanted to understand and to see the God that had sent him on this mission. And in the depths of his, his deepest despair, I'm a bit technologically challenged this morning, guys. that point he, he really needed to understand and God tells him he says to go stand at the entrance go stand at the entrance to the cave 
but he doesn't do that. Verse 11, so he said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a very gentle blowing. The Lord was passing by. It's the same Hebrew context and the same Hebrew words used in Exodus. God here, though, demonstrates his omnipotent power in a mighty wind that's tearing up the rocks, and then in an earthquake that's shaking the rocks to their core, and then in a raging fire that comes across the face of the rock. But God himself at this point was not in any of them. Not that he couldn't be. For what was God, what was God to Job at the end of Job's life? And what was he when he came to the believers at Pentecost? He was a mighty wind. And what was God at Mount Sinai when the children of Israel camped there and created that golden calf? He was an earthquake that swallowed up half the camp. And what was God when Moses met him in the bush and when he led the Israelites by day on their journey out of Egypt? He was fire. Not now. What brought Elijah to the entrance of that cave to cover his face with his cloak was the sound of that gentle whisper, a still, small voice, literally in the Hebrew, a delicate, whispering voice. The most powerful way that God reveals himself, that will ever reveal himself to any of us, is in his voice. It's in his word. God asked him again in that same gentle voice, why are you here? And Elijah repeats, but there's probably a little bit less emphasis now. He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant and have torn down your altars and killed your prophets, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So God gives him the answer. He gives him the answer that he's been looking for. The words to bring life back to the desert of Elijah's soul. Elijah's interpretation of God's plan was not God's plan. But then, as now, there is always a divine plan. The Lord said, go, return the way you came. When you've arrived, you will anoint Haziel, king over Aram, and Jehu, son of Nimshi, over Israel, and Elisha, you shall appoint as a prophet in your place. And he said, I have saved 7,000 in Israel, all of the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. You see, God's not through. He's never through. He's not through with Israel, and he's not through with Elijah. God's remnant is safe. He, he has picked for the future and Elijah is to go make it happen. Interesting note, though. Haziel, um, there's no mention anywhere in Scripture that Haziel uh, was ever a believer. Um, and yet the Lord did amazing things 
in and through Israel through this one non-believer. Jehu was a just king, the most just king, avenging all the evils that were done by Ahab. And as such, his house lasted five generations. Elisha carried the mantle of Elijah all the way to the end of the prophets. Now I want to back up. We'll end here. That still small voice. This is where the real rest of the story uh, lies for me, I think, and for all of us. What's God revealing through that delicate whisper that he gave him on the mountain? It was his word. 800 years later, the word would come again. This time the word would be flesh. This time the word would physically dwell among us. This time the word for our sake would stand like the rock that surrounded that cleft, shielding us from the raging crush of the wind and the swallowing shaking of the quake and from the devastation of the eternal fire, all which have come for the judgment of our sin. He would take all of the wrath from the branches of the tree. The switch became a cross, and the cross became our salvation. On it, he took the punishment that we deserve so that we could have the life that he deserved. What are we left with? How do you focus when everything around you seems lost? Where is the purpose and the passion and the hope when God's plan in my world doesn't work? It's all about that delicate whispering voice. The word of the Lord spoken in the conscience of my spirit, the truth of his love and the intention for me regardless of the circumstances around me. He's never absent. He's never unaware. He's never late. For me, guys, that's really the rest of the story. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you so very much that the story doesn't end with pain or loss or failure or fear or directionlessness. But there's always a purpose and there's always a plan and that you're always involved. Father, may we, as we move forward with you, learn to hear you in the still, small voice in the center of our souls. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.